Before we get to today's show, let me ask you a question. Do you enjoy coitus? Well, Thousand Movie Project Podcast is sponsored this week by AdamandEve.com, the number one adult toy retailer on the internet. When you enter the coupon code TMPP at checkout, you'll get 50% off of just about anything you want to buy. But that's not all. Thousand Movie Project Podcast's coupon code also opens up free shipping along with some toys. Just imagine free shipping and a whopper of a discount on such unique products as Hannah Harper Life-Size Inflatable Sex Doll. Are you ready to party with sexy starlet Hannah Harper? This bubbly, big-breasted blonde is the life of the party, and she can't wait to show you a good time. Dress her up, strip her down, and gaze into her realistic 3D face as she offers up her sweet pink and backdoor openings. So what are you waiting for? Go to adamandeve.com now, select an inanimate object with which to slake your degenerate thirst, and use the offer code TMPP at checkout to get 50% off of your item, plus free shipping, and a box full of gifts. And now, on to the show. Yeah, 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 yeah. Hey guys, my name is Alex, and you're listening to the Thousand Movie Project Podcast. For the latter part of this episode, I'm going to be attaching something I recorded about a month ago. I was intending to piece it together and clean it up and post it immediately after I recorded it, but it was also right before I got lost in the chaos of trying to pack up my apartment and move out, which of course I left until like the last three days of my stay. The recording is about how I went to the Coral Gables Art Cinema, and I caught one of the two daily screenings of the new documentary called Hallelujah. It's got a florid subtitle, I don't remember, but um, it's about how Leonard Cohen went about writing his song Hallelujah, how, like, everybody ignored it for 30 years, and then it appeared in the movie Shrek, and it blew up, and now I think it's, like, the most covered song in American history. Anyways, I recorded that, and, you know, prior to sitting down and recording this intro, because even though the recording is only a month old, for some reason I'm convinced it's gonna feel dated, but I, dr I pulled up this file, and I was like, fuck, did I seriously talk for 30 minutes about this documentary? But I don't know if I've said very much on the podcast about my obsession with Leonard Cohen. I adore Leonard Cohen, both the dude and his music. But while I will gladly and guiltlessly fess up to loving whatever it is that I love, I also try to be quick in adding totally not a recommendation. I also kind of enjoy pointing out like, hey, I love this thing, but also let's just acknowledge that empirically, it's kind of a mess. And an analogy that recently came to mind is like, because I was I was caught in that question of like, everyone of course says, hey, you know, art is subjective. Art is, and I t always tend to feel that that language is not exactly on point. I think the slightly clearer way of communicating that idea is everyone's reaction to a piece of art is subjective, but there are certain criteria by which you can kind of empirically say that a certain work of art is good or bad. Not good or bad with like moral implications or ethical implications. And also there's the question of perfection. Obviously perfection it, we know is not something that can actually be achieved in a work of art or in a human being in anything in life. 
But that's kind of like just a conceptual thing that we start telling ourselves. Like, for instance, you can draw a perfect circle. What you cannot do is 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 paint a perfect painting that is a conceptualized interpretation of a circle. And so I do think that there are certain perfect pieces of art, but that's because they have a commercial dimension. So let's take Hamlet, for example. Obviously, Hamlet is a fucking masterpiece, and the writer's a genius, and no one will ever reach the end of its bottomless understanding of human whatever. That being said, it's also kind of a mess, which is why you will almost never in your life see that anyone is advertising the five and a half hour production of the entirety of Hamlet. It is always edited, and pretty much everyone is in consensus about the parts that need to be edited out. And yet, you could say that's part of its perfection, is the fact that it does not, you know, conform to the media, whatever. You could say it is just so entirely itself, so idiosyncratically itself. That, yes, and I think that's all true, but it's also really fucking baggy, and if you watch the whole thing straight, it's pretty boring. I think someone even pointed out that, like, when Shakespeare... Harold Bloom said that Shakespeare did this on purpose. I don't think so. But that apparently when Hamlet, like, goes off on a ship somewhere in the play, he's 18, and then he comes back and he's 34. I, I will still call it a masterpiece and, like, give it all the credit in the world, but, like, that's a fucking accident. But you know what is perfect? Robocop. And I know... That sounds fucking ridiculous, that sounds like a joke, but it is marketed as an action movie, and it's got plenty of action. It's got upsetting action, in terms of, like, grisly violence. It's also got fun action, like, you criminals getting their comeuppance. Robocop is sad, and it's funny, it's depressing, and it's uplifting. It is despondent and nihilistic, but it's also got a glimmer of hope, and that's the note on which it ends, so that you leave the theater smiling. It has a neat and diagrammable three-act structure that comports itself into a sleek one hour and 43 minute runtime, and it is exactly as irreverent and exciting and ridiculous as its title suggests. And if you are paying for an evening's entertainment, going in to see Robocop, and you just have the faintest idea of how, of, of wh how what this movie needs to be in order to reward your expectations, it will exceed those expectations. So if I start rhapsodizing in this episode about how Luya and Leonard Cohen, it's so perfect. What I, I don't, again, I haven't listened to the recording. I don't know. I don't know if I start talking in a kind of effervescent, over the top way. But thanks for listening. Let me go ahead and just switch you over to that guy. There is a new documentary in theaters, I think it might be streaming at the same time, but it's about Leonard Cohen, basically. More specifically, it's about Leonard Cohen's song, Hallelujah, and it's got kind of a cheesy title, like The Man... The Man... I don't know... The Man, The Myth of the Song, or something like that. The Man, The Journey, The Song. And yes, that is very hokey language, but it is a fucking journey, man. If you are not familiar with the story, of Hallelujah, you are almost certainly familiar with the song, which was made intergalactically famous because of the movie Shrek. Although what I learned from the documentary is that although the song appears in the movie, that is not the version that got famous because of the movie. What DreamWorks did was they hired Rufus Wainwright to cover the song, and so he covered it, and he covered it wonderfully, but it did not fit the pace of the movie, or like the the mood they were going for, and so they replaced it. They hired him to cover the song for the movie, and then they were like, actually, fuck you, we're not gonna use it. But there was something in the contract where, like, although Rufus Wainwright's version was not in the movie, they did put it on Shrek the album, and the Shrek movie album went double platinum that year. So that's how it exploded, and then after Shrek, 
everyone started singing it on American Idol, and then everyone started covering, like, kind of off-the-radar musicians with very powerful voices. But the real, like, mythic story of Hallelujah is that Leonard Cohen, when he was 40 years old, around his late 30s, early 40s, he spent seven years writing that song, and then after Columbia Records had paid him for an album called Various Positions, which is also the title of the novel I wrote before Cuba Fruit, they paid him for the album, and then when they heard the album, which had Hallelujah on it, they were like, actually, never mind. Famously, what one of the producers said to him was, Leonard, we know that you're great, we just don't know if you're any good. I have no idea what that means. I don't think that man had any idea what he was saying, but it's it's the kind of put down that after you have paid someone to spend several years on a project and then you shit on the project, you, it's, it's wise to insult them in a way that they have to chew on it, like so you have time to leave the room without injury. So the record is canceled in the United States, but it starts circulating in Europe. And in Europe, it's pretty popular but it doesn't get released in the United States for another couple years, and then even after its release, no one really gives a shit. Bob Dylan covers it, a few musicians cover it here and there, but the public never really takes notice. And so, Leonard Cohen, although devastated, although convinced that he had written a magnificent song, you hear him in a recording joking in the documentary like, hey, my posthumous career is gonna be fucking huge. But he decided to just kind of move on, and he went and he made more albums, and then eventually, in his 60s, he went to live in a mountain Zen monastery for several years and just kind of like completely disconnected from the world. And it was while he was disconnecting from the world that Hallelujah was covered by Jeff Buckley, and it became kind of a modest hit in 1994-5-6, and then Shrek happened, and it, it took over the world. And just as Hallelujah was taking off as this national phenomenon, Leonard Cohen moved back down to Los Angeles from his mountaintop Zen monastery, and when he got back to his house, he found that his agent had completely swindled him out of all the money he had. This is not covered in the documentary, but I remember it from his biography. He had been tinkering kind of aimlessly with a pretty much completed book of poems called Book of Longing for like 16 years, and just refused to acknowledge that it was done, that he wasn't doing any good to it. And so, like, right away, he had no choice but to sell that, because it was there to be sold. And so he got a book deal, and that was going out into the world. And then the next thing he could do at the age of 70 was he could go on tour for the first time in, I think, more than a decade. Also, he had some songs that he had written but not recorded, and so he fucking recorded those songs, and he made, released an album called Old Ideas. That album was a huge hit. The fucking world tour turned into this explosive fucking thing. I think it lasted like five years and he did 390 shows. And the, just the beauty of that story is like he spent so many years working on this, this one song, fucking nailed it. He released it, everyone shat on it, and then he just moved on with his life. And then he lost everything. And when he once he lost everything, all that hard work just kind of, it went up into the ether and it came back to greet him at his moment of most dire need and you see that when he goes on that world tour as much as he is giving like a fantastic show and people are absolutely getting their money's worth and the sh the performances are getting magnificent write-ups there's also just this vibe of gratitude from the audience you can tell people are like oh thanks for writing that song that means so much to me it's described in the documentary i think like wisely as sort of the modern secular prayer 
definitely suggest that you read the lyrics if you've only ever heard the song. Like, read the lyrics. They're abstruse and they're laden with biblical references. Those don't matter so much. It's just very deep. It's very beautiful. And it's not even like the deepest or most beautiful or lyrical of Leonard Cohen's work. It's fucking one of my dreams that maybe if I have like a fucking working career as a writer, I want to do a book about Leonard Cohen, which would be a nightmare of legal issues because I don't know if you know this, but if you publish a book and you want to use an excerpt of lyrics from a song, you, the author, have to pay for that excerpt. The publishing house does not pay for it. And I remember when I was a research assistant for a ghostwriter, we were working with an author on his memoir, and he wanted he wanted to quote a verse from a song in West Side Story, I think, or maybe it was Yankee Doodle Dandy. So I had to get in touch with the studio and their legal department and, and try to figure out how much it was going to cost. And I got the vibe that, like, they were making up the number two. Like, it just doesn't happen that much. Not the number two, that they were also making up the number. I wasn't like, how much is this going to cost? And they were like, two! It costs two! I think the reason the documentary hit me so hard is because, like, it reacquainted me with Hallelujah. I drift away from Leonard Cohen's body of work for usually, like, a couple years at a time, and then, like, shit hits the fan, and I do another deep dive, and I discover all this shit, like, symbols and analogies and meanings that I hadn't gleaned the first time. But, like, all the themes in Hallelujah are about grief and renewal and shit like that, and, I like, I'm in a moment of, like, major transition. I talked about it on the last episode, but, like, just to run through it again, and to riff. I am, at present, moving out of this apartment that I've lived in for four years, and not just this apartment, but this, like, area. Little Havana. Pretty much every episode of this podcast has been recorded from this one desk, this microphone, looking with my looking out and being informed, I guess, emotionally, by the view. And obviously so much of the material that I have generated, both in writing and in recording, have stemmed from things that I experience in Little Havana. Particularly, I think, like, the topic that I've most mined for material is the rampant homelessness in my area and, like, seeing what appear to be the causes of it and how, like, a legit commute, like, a neighborly community is forged among the homeless in my area and, I don't know, like, a bunch of shit. I had a whole thing about homelessness. As you can, if you sift through the episodes, you'll see that kind of arc that I went through. So that's one thing, the loss of one setting and, you know, adapting to a new one. Not just a new apartment, but a new part of town. I'm moving to South Beach and I'm moving in with my girlfriend. And so new room, new part of town, and new living companion. And I'm not worried about the dynamic or anything. Like, we get along really, really well. Not at all concerned about that. If there's anything I'm concerned about, as pertains to moving in with my girlfriend, it's the shit I'm gonna learn about myself. Because when you're living that close to someone, it's, it's a studio apartment. So when we're living that close to one another, she's gonna observe things about like the cycles of my moods, fucking very distinct smells I leave around. And I know it's gonna hold up a mirror to me in some respects, and there are gonna be things I maybe don't like about what I see there. And then the other strange big limbo thing going on is Cube of Fruit, the book that I wrote and keep bringing up because it will not go away. I love the book, love working on it, but I I would like to move on to new things. My agent and I are going back and forth with edits. It's I'm, I'm having a legitimately great time with it. It's really evolving, it's really improving, but it's kind of a big book, so that's a very slow process. And whenever we're sending it out to publishers, eventually they are going to have to spend 
a few days or weeks reading it, and then they're probably going to have to take it up the chain of command and get someone else to read it, if in fact they even want to entertain the possibility of publishing it. So there is that limbo thing of like, what will, like, will Cuba Fruit ever end? And if so, what will be its final shape? And also, what will be its fate? Will it get published? Will it not get published? How will I react to either of those things? The general wisdom is like, okay, if this book that you're writing does not get published, if it fails, go on to writing the next book and don't worry about it. But I am writing the next book and it's a sequel to that one. And it's been, I've been working on it a long time. And it's getting pretty long. So I'm, I'm thinking about that. I'm also thinking like, let's say it does get published. How will I react to the book's success? Or, and how will I conversely react to its failure if it should fail? Or how will I respect to its to a very decidedly mediocre performance? What if it does well commercially, but it does poorly with reviews or vice versa? It is very easy to fall into these wormholes of wondering how the Cuba fruit situation might turn out. And also I've got a new job. It's very similar to the last job. I've mostly worked in restaurants as a host or a busser or a food runner. And when you occupy those positions, those positions don't pay much money. They have difficult hours. They're kind of physically exhausting and uh, I don't want to use the word exploitative, but they're definitely exploitative. And on that note, like I, this is not, neither here nor there, but because this restaurant pays pretty well, they have like very good retention. The company itself is like glowingly proud of this as they should be. And I've noticed that while working at other restaurants, um, whenever there was a moment of downtime and you could sort of have casual conversation, personable conversation with a colleague, whether it was a server or a bartender or a bus or whatever, they almost invariably would speak of this restaurant, of, of the hospitality industry in general, as a stopping place, as like a point of transition or, or jumping off. Like they were just saving enough money so they could go to school for this particular thing or so they could move to this particular dream country and get a job there where they're destined to make more money and have more interesting romantic partners. I just have always experienced the restaurant environment as being this place where people, they conceive of their lives as being in some kind of limbo. But when I talk to the colleagues at this restaurant, my new colleagues, they talk very much about their positions there as being a kind of destination. They don't openly say like, oh, I'm a server here, I'm a bartender here, and I intend to do that forever. But those who have voiced to me any kind of ambition beyond what they are doing at this moment in this position, it is an ambition that exists within the company. They want to climb the, the they want to climb the corporate ladder, and more power to them. But it's just interesting to find myself working for the first time in my life among people who feel that they are there. And it, I don't know that the people I'm talking to are particularly tormentedly introspective as I am, and like constantly doubting themselves. But it made me wonder, like, if you were to achieve that, that emotional and intellectual and personal situation where you are no longer asking that question of what's next because there is no next for you professionally you have achieved a sort of professional stasis you want to keep the status quo i don't think that silences the professional part of your mind but i do imagine it frees up a lot of space in your head and it made me wonder like if i was not really like paranoically thinking all the time about where am I going next? What's going to happen for me professionally? What would I be thinking about? Like, would I have cr fucking 
secured something? Because I feel like I put a lot of mental energy toward that question of, oh god, oh god, what now? How is this gonna work? How am I gonna pay these bills? Life is so expensive. I'm 31 years old. It should not be hitting me as such a goddamn plot twist, but I am so consistently just taken aback like, oh, more money? I need more? Which is very often my fault, because I spend a ridiculous amount of money on beer. I spend like, not gonna, I spend like a hundred dollars a week just at a, at bars. With all this going on, it was interesting to go again, to, to, to confront again the story of Leonard Cohen and Hallelujah. If you don't know, Leonard Cohen made the fairly wise decision of dropping dead on election night 2016. So he, like, has not really been on my radar as an active, you know, participating artist for, for quite some time. And it was interesting to be dunked back into that and to be reminded of the fact that the story of that song, Hallelujah, ended up manifesting what the song is about. The broken hallelujah, that, you know, grace or success or redemption happens in, you know, dirty situations. Uh, things have to break in order for you to achieve redemption. It was a reminder that what might seem like a cataclysmic, humiliating failure in the moment, it might turn out down the line to be the foundation of a great redemption, a great comeback. So here's hoping that this ongoing slew of changes, of displacement, of pending successes and failures, let's hope that the anxiety accompanying this moment of change ends up being the foundation, not for a comeback, because I wasn't at I never achieved those triumphant heights to begin with, so it can't be a comeback. Let's just let's, it's not a comeback. Let's just hope that it's a come. Let's hope that at once I am done processing these 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 changes and once I'm in a new steady situation, I can experience a come. That's it for me. Thank you for listening. Uh by the time you hear this, I will probably be living somewhere else. And uh thanks for being a, you know, long-time companion. While I've been here in Little Havana, I look forward to speaking with you on the other side of this transition and whatever it holds, and uh, yeah, talk to you when I'm there.